Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. In April 2018, Glenn Herod gave up. His attempt to create the Happy Cow Milk Company had failed. The idea was noble, create a dairy company where the cows keep their young. The calves are not sent straight to slaughter and the milking shed is mobile. That is, it goes to the cows rather than the cows going to the shed. The idea was beautiful, but perhaps too beautiful to be true. After years of trying and getting little traction, Glenn ran out of money and put the company into liquidation. End of the happy cow. Or maybe not. After announcing his decision on Facebook, Glenn received a flurry of messages and offers of help, including investment. Punters, and especially his fans on social, weren't prepared to see him fail. The result now is version two of the happy cow, remodeled, refinanced and revived. Two years on from that faithful month, I'm catching up with Glenn to see if indeed Happy Cow is remaking the dairy industry as we know it. Glenn, thanks for joining me. Oh, you brought it all back again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's good to be here. Thanks. No, I, I don't really want to repeat all of that uh, two years ago, but uh, actually it was a good thing. I'm glad it happened. Well, you are indeed in business. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, we started Happy Cow back in 2014 basically because I couldn't – I'd been trying to partner with a dairy farmer for about five years prior, and uh, the idea was, you know, uh, sustainability, animal welfare was something that the, uh, the public was after, and I couldn't really convince any farmers. So I decided, you know, not really – a bit undercapitalized, but I decided to um, – go out and, and prove the system myself. So that's when we started Happy Cow to start off with. Um, and in many cases, it was actually very good. The, the problem we had was that we just we were always selling out of milk and um, we were having so many unhappy customers because if you run out of milk, um, if you're a cafe and you've got no milk, that's a bit of a disaster. So we were trying to scale and grow in order to meet demand and you know, uh, growth is actually expensive. And anyway, we ran into cash flow issues and essentially uh, shut it down. But um, just take us back to the original proposition, though, Glenn. What what was the problem that you had solved with your uh, with your new tech? With you know, what were you do, doing differently? Well, I um, the, the idea. My thesis is is that uh, going forward, actually, the power is with small um, small farmers. Uh, the the way the dairy industry has been going with uh, ever getting larger and larger and, and, and bigger scale, it's not what customers are wanting. And it's these smaller farmers who are able to farm sustainably and ethically and and so on is what uh, customers want. The problem is, is around the world, those smaller family farms are not profitable. So the idea was how do we get a system in which uh, small-scale farmers can sell direct to them? Uh, the consumer and you know you can do these things with t-shirts or any sort of other product like maybe carrots or something but with dairy you've got a whole lot of uh, regulation that you have to meet food safety regulation 
and you're dealing with a perishable product. So that's uh, that's what we were trying to solve. The idea was how do we make it so that these um, smaller scale ethical farmers, you know, who are doing things, you know, the right way, whatever that is, um, can actually be profitable. And uh, um, the idea was, oh, I'll just get a little mo- a little um, prototype going, and then we'll spend money on the tech to get it mm-hmm. working. Uh, it turns out that uh, we really needed the tech first. But um, what I did do differently was I, I had a, a mobile cow shed, so that enabled uh, us to really roll our our big trailer basically onto any block of land without having to do a full-scale dairy conversion. And uh, it also enabled us to trial different sort of farming systems like um, leaving our calves with their mothers and uh, different sort of grazing management uh, techniques. And the prototype was a success, you're saying, but you but yeah. the, the issue was scalability. Yeah, well, no, it wasn't really. A, it, it wasn't scalable. So, it, in fact, it wasn't even small scalable. Um, what happens is, um, what I found was distribution was really expensive, and also milk processing was quite expensive when you do it at small scale. And what all I had really essentially done was just mimic a large, larger scale um, value chain. You know. A, a farm, a milk processing factory, a bottling plant, a distribution network, and then selling through retailers. And except we were doing it without scale. Hmm. And, um, and all along the way, it's everything was just a little bit more expensive. And, you know, particularly retailers who didn't want to buy or handle reusable packaging for the likes of uh, the, the major supermarkets, you know, they, they are set up for, they're not set up for someone to bring an empty bottle to the checkout. Uh, and, you know, so there was resist, uh, not resistance, but there was, our path to market wasn't, uh, wasn't that good. Mm. So, uh, it was difficult to scale through the, through the retailers. And also they would look at us and think, well, here's a little, uh, boutique business. Um, we can, instead of putting a 15% margin on, we're going to put a 30% margin. And before you know it, our milk sort of like $5 a litre. Um, so the decision was Basically, we every time I would uh, I would buy some new equipment and would scale up, and I think right now we're more efficient. I've solved all the problems, but you you find different problems, and it really became clear after I visited a, another sort of small scale producer in Nelson, and I looked at their plant, and they literally spent millions, like three million at least, and they were selling well, a little bit more milk than I was. And it became clear that if I was going to make this work, I still needed to plow in a heck of a lot more capital. And that really wasn't uh, solving the goal or the problem that we were trying to solve, which is how can you, uh, if you're a family farm, start selling your milk to the local community? So that's when we decided to shut down and it was forced by (laughs) cash flow just drying up. Hmm. And um, I didn't really know where we were going to go, but the, the response from... Uh, our crowd and I mean the story went global and um, you know we've got we still do have this this global crowd of people who are wanting to see this uh, sort of innovation work and uh, it's that funding has enabled us to really go back to the drawing board and completely start again. Just go back to that moment in uh, uh, April 2018 that was the end of the dream for you. 
Yeah, yeah, it was. Well, yeah, it was. I mean, I always backed myself. I always knew because I had – the reason I went for so long is this just the customer feedback was just always there. Um, customers were just always contacting me all through the week telling me how wonderful it was and how glad they were to found, find a farmer like like Happy Cow. And and even though I didn't have the, the path to market sorted, I knew that the customers were there. So that's what kept me going. And so, yeah, it was. It was the end of the dream. And uh, But deep down, I knew it wasn't. What did they like about it? Was it a, is it a better product? Is the can you taste the happiness? <laughs> People talk about happy. When we, we we buy Freedom Farm pork, you know, and we call it happy pork. Yeah. Imagining that somehow it tastes better, I'm not sure. Um, well, on a practical sense, when you're buying milk straight from the farm that's not homogenized and not standardized and is simply pasteurized, that milk is uh, is completely different. Oh well. You think of your your Lewis Road Creamery full cream milk that you get the non homogenized stuff, yeah. or um, or raw milk from the farm. It's it, it all tastes the same. So there's a difference there, and that's that is actually a big difference. And particularly cafes, cafes love the milk because it froths differently or better um, because it's got a higher protein content. So there's that aspect. Uh, a lot of people are just. Um, unhappy about or uncomfortable about the way modern dairy is, um, particularly the cow and calf um, policy of, of, I suppose, the, the global dairy industry, removing calves at day one, where we um, we would leave them on. And so, so we got a lot of fans from that. And um, also people just like to buy local. Mm. Mm. Indulge me for being a townie, but explain to me, how long a calf would naturally stay with its mother until uh, weaning happens? Yeah, so a so a calf will, is after about eight weeks, it's capable of living on pasture alone. So in the dairy herds around the world, most calves are weaned around that eight week mark. If you left a calf with its mother, it would, you know, it would probably stay around for maybe 12 months um, and they kind of go their separate ways but um, you run into all sorts of other issues in which um, you know male calves can start mating with their mothers and stuff after about six months of age and all those sorts of things which people don't think about but um, yeah so that the happy cow model is what we're trying to do is really um, reduce the stress or eliminate stress from the cow so we don't want the cows to feel like their baby's been removed and we actually want calves to stay with their mothers because that's essentially how nature works so we run a uh, sort of a long-winded weaning process where they um, we separate them into separate paddocks um, but they can still meet each other through the fence the calf doesn't need milk and you just watch them after about a week they they basically go their separate ways and they're not stressed out about it they do it on their own will basically Hmm. And take us back then to the moment in 2018. You start getting a flurry of interest from people. Uh, of course, it's easy on social. Everyone feels sorry for you, but you actually started getting offers of genuine help and investment. So, yeah. Um, well, I had sort of underestimated, um, yeah, what was 
possible, I suppose. But um, yeah, I set up a, uh, a Patreon account and uh, just said to people, well, if you'd like to see Happy Cow, you know, relaunch, um, I had no plan. I didn't know how to do it. I just said, you're happy to uh, donate here. And uh, you if know, you're really that sad, put your money where your mouth is. Well, people did. And, you know, we had 751 people, I think, at peak. And, um, you know, we got about $100,000 in that first year from Patreon. Um, and that enabled me to basically pour into prototypes. Well, actually, before we did all that, we just did a big um, um, post-mortem, looked through all the accounts, figured out where the expensive parts were, you know, what was costing us money, why were we inefficient, and how to uh, – and then we worked from there and figured out how to get something that's scalable. Did you have shareholders you needed to pay off, people who had been burned in the process? Well, there's, um, there's creditors who are still owed money. Uh, and no, so I was the only shareholder. Oh, and my parents. So, you know, fools, family, and friends. So. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, my poor old parents, so they probably lost uh, about as much money as I did. <laughs> oh, good on them. Um, um, what did you discover in that post-mortem and what have you changed then about the model? Well, it was clear, I was always clear that processing the milk was a difficult bit, distributing the milk was a difficult bit. But the thing I didn't really realise is how all the other little peripheral, I can't even say that, the other things you don't think about, like invoicing, non-payment, purchase orders, all the documentation around that, um, and food safety documentation, well, I knew that was costly. So when you added all that sort of stuff together, you know, there was, um, it was almost a full labor unit that was just dealing with that sort of stuff. So we set about to, well, the other thing is we also learned that when you're milk, uh, processing milk, it's the handling of the milk once it's been pasteurized is the expensive part. So um, because you, you can't contaminate that milk, you know, it has to be super um, um, hygienic. So everything, all the pipe work, the pumps, the, the environment that you process or handle that pasteurized milk is quite expensive and time-consuming. So uh, I started thinking about how to simplify the system and uh, remove all those uh, roadblocks. Hence the $3 million invested in the Nelson farm. Yeah, and a lot of that is, I mean, the, th the thing is, is when I went to visit them, I, I kept, you know, they said, oh, here's our pasteurizer. It's, um, you know, $100,000 or something, and then this broke down. It cost $60,000 to fix, and, and here's $60,000 worth of bottle caps in the corner there, and we've just bought a bottle machine, and it's $500,000, and, and um you know, I think I set my entire whole business up, including cows and tractors and everything, for about four hundred. Um, and yeah, it was that realization that if you're going to consistently do it properly, um, you do need to 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 have a decent setup. Uh, but it's just the actual ongoing cost of running it is. is mm -hmm. expensive. Mm -hmm. And so your solution is, from what I can see, is that you haven't just downscaled a, an ordinary setup and then carried a whole lot of cost burden with it. You've actually reinvented the whole process, the supply chain, effectively. You've reinvented the way that it's collected, processed, and delivered into the to the lips of the consumer. Mm. So, I mean, if you think of the, 
you know, what's the job to be done? You know, what's the tech trying to do? So we, we thought, how do we simplify processing? So the idea is, well, let's not handle processed milk if that's the expensive bit. And that's including bottling milk and cooling milk and things like that. So the the concept we've gone with is that we, we've created a tank. It's a 100-litre tank, and that tank is also a pasteuriser. So uh, raw milk will uh, – the farmer will milk their cows. The raw milk goes into that um, tank. Um, it's inside a little box, like literally a little box. You can't fit inside it yourself. But um, And that box is – it meets everything that a milk factory – all the regulations that a milk factory has to meet. It's just that you can't fit a person inside it. But um, what we do, the farmer puts raw milk in there, they seal the tank up, uh, they push the button on the iPad, and the system will heat the milk and cool the milk. And then they take that entire tank, put it on the back of their farm truck, and they'll drive it into town where that tank connects to one of our milk dispensers. And... Uh, the only way you can buy milk is uh, through our dispenser and with our app. So like a lime scooter or something like that, you would go up to it, um, scan the QR code, it knows who you are, you push the button, dispense milk, and it handles all the uh, all the payments in the back end. And essentially, you know, we, we eliminate all this need for purchase orders and invoicing and things like that. Hmm. So you, you have effectively taken an entire industrial process and put it into a 100-litre container, you've miniaturised the process that Fonterra puts in in these gigantic drying, sorry, we're not talking about drying milk, are we? we're talking about, about um, pasteurising milk, but you've taken what was formerly an industrial process needing to be done at scale and miniaturised it. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, if we look at modern technology, they would use um, what's called a, a high-temperature short-time processing where you heat milk to 72 degrees for 15 seconds. And th- that sort of equipment has to be very precise and there's a lots of rigmarole around starting it up and things like that. So what we've done is really taken 1950s technology, which is a, a batch pasteurizer, which is basically a, a glorified pot on the stove, and we've just added the internet to it. So we've put an IoT device on the on the top. And now what that does is it allows lay people who are not process engineers to be able to process milk in a very structured, very simplified way. So our system only works one way. It's, you know, there's no room for uh, um, anyone to do anything else. It just works a certain way. And we use sensors um and our software to ensure that it happens in the right order at the right time and so on. I'm not an engineering person, but I am a beer person, and it does remind me of the beer processing, uh, the difference between batch and continuous fermentation. Is there an analogy here? And I'm thinking particularly of, I think it's the Wilson Whitaker brewery, microbrewery, that um, two Kiwi guys invented, and effectively it's the size of a fridge you can create your own batch of beer at home, that's actually pretty good. Yeah, it's the same thing. I mean, pasteurization has really been around for 150 years when Louis Pasteur invented it. Yet, the why is it so expensive in 2021? It essentially is putting a, a pot of milk on the stove, heating it up and holding it there for two minutes and then cooling it down. But the regulation is the costly bit. But when you understand how it works and – you know, um, 
when you've dealt with regulators like I did for a couple of years, you understand that actually we can make this simplified. And this IoT technology, cloud-based software, the, the availability of it now, uh, it makes these things uh, possible. So what have been the barriers that you had to overcome? There was cl- clearly kind of the thinking about it. And and then what did you do in terms of creating a prototype? Did you get help from local manufacturers? Uh, have you found people supporting you up, up in addition to your Facebook friends? Um, well, we've had our crowd. Um, so they've always been there. Uh, we, we crowdfunded, equity crowdfunded in November 2019. And we raised $400,000, and that enabled us to build the prototype. Uh, and, and that included custom electrical boards. We built the, um, the cloud infrastructure, the Happy Cow apps that uh, the farmer, the, the reseller, and the customers use, and um, enabled us to start getting this through uh, MPI regulations. So. Mm. We've actually done quite a lot with 400K, but uh, yeah, we've, and we've done it all from here, from Christchurch. We do get our stainless steel from um, China. We um, have the tanks manufactured over there. Um, but uh, yeah, so we have a full working system. We installed our dispenser last week in um, Saltworks, our co-working space here, and uh, we're now about to uh, raise more money to uh, basically scale it. <laughs> So complete the picture for me. You have the farmer collecting the the milk, which then is processed in these sort of micro pasteurization facilities, then get delivered to a retail outlet. And it could be what what kind of retail outlet are we talking about? Cafes, homes? Um, so anyone really. It can be retailers. It can be um, we're, we're going to go into schools. Uh, we're going to go into um, uh, cafes and Anyone, we've also got a home delivery option, so a st- uh, sort of an Uber Eats style delivery drivers. Mm. Mm. It's kind of like a milk, it looks like a, a keg, it looks like a beer keg that's going to be um, sitting under a bench or or whatever, and, and literally comes out a dispenser, like a, a tap dispenser that you hook up to an app. Yeah, so the dispenser just sits there. Yeah, so if I go back to, to the farmer, the farmer basically gets our, uh, what we call our processing hub, and what does this look like? It probably looks like a little garden shed, maybe three metres by two metres wide. And inside there will be um, five tanks. So there's 500 litres. The farmer would milk the cows. The milk would go in there. They would um, pasteurise the milk. They'd put those tanks onto their truck, drive into town, and our app tells them where to go because we're monitoring every tank in real time. Mm. We know how full they are. We know when Cafe B is going to run out of milk or whatever. And the farmer will drop off a, a full tank, pick up the empties, um, and take them back to the farm at the, the cafe or the retailer. Uh, we've got your dispenser there, and, and customers have the Happy Cow app. They just walk up to the dispenser, scan the QR code, and dispense their milk. And then behind the scenes, all the, the transactions take place. That's amazing. Have you seen anything like this anywhere else? I mean, there's milk dispensers around. Um, there's people doing small-scale dairy around. But, I mean, the difference what we're doing is is we're making it scalable. So the the idea is, is that this hub can install into any farm anywhere in the world. A farmer orders it, 
The tanks arrive on a truck, they unload it, they plug it into the internet, and they become fully compliant milk processors because they're using our system. We then give them 15 dispensers and a business plan, or we'll work with them to find their first 15 customers. And they go into their local town, install those dispensers, and then we run a marketing campaign to get all the customers. And they only need 1,500 customers to you know, make a really good living. And there we've set up a little node anywhere in the world just um, uh, selling milk. And then we, um, we obviously take a cut of that. So, and we can scale this around you know, anywhere or conceivably anywhere with an internet connection. So in addition to solving the tech, you've also had to solve the business process which includes all the marketing, the thinking about consumer connection, the, the the model for licensing, and so on. You have been busy. Well, there's a lot there. I wouldn't say we've we've figured it all out, but um, I think the important bit is that the farmer gets to communicate directly with their customers, and that's really why I have the support I have is because people would. Um, see what I was doing, they would like it, and they would message me asking questions and would have a dialogue, you know, asking curly questions about calves and mastitis, you know, artificial insemination, all those things. And when you're open and honest, people trust you more. And that's really what we want to do is, is you know, show people that their farmer is a real person and maybe that farmer also gets to um, – understand what their customers are wanting and we, we build a uh, well a better community I suppose has the interest been from uh, people concerned about sustainability and I'm thinking perhaps the, the stereotype might be urban people who are removed from the process of farming or has it indeed been from dairy farmers themselves oh no dairy farmers are uh, <laughs> the least interested I would say um no, our, our fans are urban people who um, care about animal welfare and sustainability. So the two big things they are interested in is uh, elimination of single-use plastic and um, animal welfare. Hmm. Mm. The plastic being the bottles, obviously, that uh, our, even our delicious Lewis Road Creamery or Poohoy milk is delivered in and yeah. hopefully recycled. Yeah, well, um, if you talk to, um, uh, I've forgotten his name, Mr. Cullinan. Peter. Uh, Peter, yeah, he would dearly love to have his um, milk in uh, glass bottles, but uh, the processor can't do it. And actually, this is the interesting thing. When when I was working through it, you can't actually, to solve that uh, single-use plastic issue, it's actually a, um, it's a milk processing problem. Um, and milk processors won't fill glass bottles. Um, so we had to really make up our own processing facility to enable it to happen. So and it, it's funny how to for any reusable packaging of any description, you really need local supply to make it work because reusable packaging doesn't work over long supply chains. And the modern way we distribute food is this big centralized system. Um, so that's why... Partly this local farmers supplying their local community enables reusable packaging. Hmm. And they just explain what's the problem with putting glass into a big uh, dairy system? Well, they, 
Well, they, if you ask them, essentially they'd have to change their, their factories, they'd have to change the equipment, and you're just adding complexity and you're adding risk to them. So they would say that there's a risk of glass chips getting into the milk, um, and really they don't want to wash bottles because washing bottles is a, a tedious um, and very, very difficult um, procedure to do to a high standard. Um, so they're just not interested in doing that, and they don't need to because they, I mean, well, they haven't needed to because um, the retailers don't particularly want to do with re- reusable packaging either because it's, mm. it adds risk to them as well. And if you talk to the major supermarkets, which I have, they've sort of said, look, we understand people want it, we know it's going to happen, but our legal department's just not ready for it. And so the, the, the packaging that people, the customers for your uh Per happy cow milk would be carried in uh, their own containers? Yeah, well, we eventually I think we'd like to supply them with a container. Um, and everyone talks about glass bottles, but uh, they're far from perfect. And I've just about chopped my half my finger off from glass bottles. Um, and the, the glass bottles that we get in New Zealand are really single use glass bottles that just happen to get used again and again. So we're more thinking of a, uh, a stainless steel type container that has a an open lid, uh, you know, so it can go in a dishwasher because people do not clean their milk bottles very well. And um, this is a uh, yeah a, a phenomenon where people aren't really used to having to do that. Mm. And because in many ways you're just shifting the problem from the manufacturer to the consumer, right, to uh, maintain the the kind of the sterilised standards for containers yeah well i sort of think of it like ikea they say you can have a great table and it can be cheap but you've got to put it together yourself so we sort of say that Hmm. it's entirely possible i'm sure um what are the other sustainability issues do you think that this model addresses well i I think largely when you look at the, the dairy industry around the world it's just consolidating so is roughly 22,000 farmers go broke every year around the, around the world. And this has been happening for the last 20 years. And that doesn't mean that people are turning off milk. All that means is those 22,000 farms are replaced by a couple of hundred mega farms. Um, there's more milk in the world now than there ever has been. And the problem is, is if we, if we look at everything to do with sustainability, that, you know, a a 20,000 cow dairy farm is not it. And, yeah, and people will um, rightly point out that that sort of dairy is inefficient. And when you see the the figures around uh, CO2 usage or carbon footprint of dairy compared to other forms of agriculture, it doesn't look good. Uh, What we are sort of saying is when you take a pasture-based approach where the the cow harvests the milk herself and she spreads her own effluent and so on. That's actually um, a very efficient and um, sustainable way of having animal agriculture. The problem is those farms aren't profitable. So hopefully we can solve that problem. Did you say those problems, those farms are not profitable or are profitable? Are not profitable. No, so um, if you look in the US, basically you need to have 2,000 cows before you're actually making any money. Um, And the smaller, and those farms will be mainly corn fed. So that's where you're basically planting a crop 
and crops are quite uh, intensive on CO2. You know, you're starting tractors, you're ploughing ground, releasing carbon into the soil, you're transporting this feed to a farm, and then you're starting up another tractor to feed the cows and so on. When you, well, they do that because you can double the production of a cow when you do that. But when you feed a cow just grass and you leave her to it, her production will be halved, but you're not starting a tractor, you're not transporting food around, you're not planting crops because crops are good, but if you cannot plant a crop, it's better to do that. It's better to leave the soil alone. So um, that's the form of agriculture we're promoting. Uh, and those farmers around the world throughout Europe are just not profitable. The, the issues for in a New Zealand context that stand out for dairy farming is the intensification and the effluent runoff and also the impact of particularly nitrogen runoff into waterways. Mm. How does mm. the happy cow, uh, sorry, yeah, happy cow, how does it address those two issues? Well, when you think of this... I'm a bit of a I geek out on this, so I, I can probably go into way more detail than you're interested in. But um, a New Zealand pasture-based farm is actually kind, quite good compared to the rest of the world. There is problems when you uh, intensify it basically over the winter, uh, and that's where dairy really needs to change. And it really comes down to stocking rate. So the, the simple answer is that if you have too many cows on a small block of land, you're going to run into issues. And um, I don't know how much detail you want me to go in, but basically if you can... It, I'll tell it, you when you get boring. <laughs> um, I, I suppose what I do want to say is that, like, I'm not on the Christmas card list of many dairy farmers, but the, the dairy industry in New Zealand is actually pretty good compared to the rest of the world. And... I know there's a lot of angst about the dairy industry and you know, particularly Greenpeace's um, campaign around the nitrogen fertiliser. But when you look at the science around how nitrogen gets into the waterways, it's actually from the urine patch of the cows. It's not from fertiliser usage. Um, dairy farmers actually use very small amounts of nitrogen fertiliser compared to um, a cropping environment. And that sort of goes against what most people believe. But So nitrogen fertiliser isn't really the issue. We don't typically use it with happy cow, but that's the wrong focus. The focus is when a cow urinates in a paddock, her urine patch is really concentrated and the grass within that urine patch is unable to absorb all that nitrogen. And what happens is it eventually goes below the root depth and then it just falls into the water, uh, yeah, the aquifers over time. And it probably takes like 15, 20 years to get into the aquifer. And that's really what's happening now in places like Canterbury. So the solution to that is you need broad-based, deep-rooting pastures. And most of the dairy industry, particularly in the high-risk areas like Canterbury, use very low-rooted um, ryegrass and white clover. And then they dump lots of water on it so the roots don't need to go deep. The result is you get a lot more nitrate leaching and that's really the issue we need to focus on as dairy farmers and how what what are you doing and how does your solution contribute to that well we're big fans of the regenerative agricultural model which is really where you mix cows in with crops and ideally with trees if possible so cows put nutrients into the ground crops take nutrients out of the ground 
And when you have that system working together, um, you can have a very sustainable system where you don't really lose any nitrogen. The second thing is really you just need to keep cows, you need to manage those urine patches during the winter months, so June, July, and August. So that's really when most of the nitrate leaching takes place. So uh, possibly putting cows indoors over winter or having them contained in some way is the way to solve that. Or the opposite is to put them over a, uh, a much greater area. The other big issue, and this is really the elephant in the room, is methane. And we know that the uh, impact that methane has on the atmosphere is five times more powerful, but also much more short-lived compared to CO2. But in New Zealand, the, the, it really is the dairy herd that is contributing so much more disproportionately to New Zealand's climate profile, our emissions profile. I'm assuming that nothing the happy cow company can do is going to be able to affect that methane production well yeah we're, i have big debates about this <laughs> so you know if we get back to basic science um you know nothing is created nothing is destroyed so the cow doesn't just magic up that methane out of nowhere it has to come from somewhere and if we think about you know, CO2 in the atmosphere, one carbon, two oxygen atoms. Uh, let's say a grass plant absorbs that CO2. It keeps the C, the carbon inside the grass plant. It releases the O2 back into the atmosphere via photosynthesis, and that's why plants are the lungs of the world. So if that grass plant has that carbon in it and it just, uh, let's say, it withers away and dies, that carbon either goes into the ground or into the, back into the atmosphere. But if a cow comes and eats that grass, the carbon now goes into the cow and she ferments it and digests it and so on and then she belches it out as methane, which is CH4, one carbon, four hydrogen atoms. So the carbon is just going back into the atmosphere exactly where it came from. So it's not, it's not new carbon. The carbon was already there. The fact is the grass plant could not have grown without absorbing that carbon. Where you have to, what we have to worry about is when we're introducing new carbon, and that's whenever we turn a tractor on or a car or a vehicle where we're taking fossil fuel deep in the, the ground and now introducing new carbon to the atmosphere. Now, I know that's not the official line of many of the scientists, but to me, I just, I just can't get past the, the fact that, you know, um, a cow hasn't created that methane. That carbon had to come from the environment, and she's just part of the cycle. And it's the same for rice milk or, or rice paddies, where they create a lot of methane as well. I mean, that argument reminds me of someone, you know, who said, "Look, in the long term, it'll all work out," which is probably true. But in the long term, we're all dead. And the <laughs> the, the challenge with uh, what you're saying is it's it's not proportional to the impact now. So, you know, we are releasing more methane into the atmosphere than what the atmosphere can handle. I, I suppose that one argument you could make in your favour um, um, is that we're talking about smaller herds, right? Well, it's, as far as that goes, I mean, whether it's a small herd or a big herd doesn't, I suppose matter. Um, it's if if we think that a an, a ruminant um, belching out methane is bad for the environment, well then all all ruminants, whether they're in a small herd or a big herd, is um, the problem. Um, I'm sort of saying that I mean, if you eliminated all the cows in the world, 
you've still got exactly the same amount of carbon in the atmosphere. Um, it's just been absorbed. It'll be absorbed by the grass mm. and nothing's eating it, and then it'll just be released back into the atmosphere again. Uh, I mean, like I said, we have I have big debates. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have time for this. Um, but uh, the, the other question I, I guess that I've uh, got is thinking about the opportunity that this presents as an alternative or a solution to synthetics. And, you know, one of the reasons that synthetics are uh, uh, this I'm, I'm talking about, you know, kind of milk with a Y. Um, so, in, uh, you know, f- fermented milk or manufactured milk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he- here you potentially have a solution in your company of effectively kind of milk without suffering. And it's bespoke uh, and it's um, local and, and it does the very opposite. Instead of trying to compete on industrial scale you have completely uh i suppose that perhaps it's the the analogy of instead instead of a digital solution you've gone back to some sort of analog solution do you think that argument could stand up well yeah that's exactly right we've sort of said if you're going to you know buy animal agriculture then it has to be impeccable i suppose or as good as it can be and we're really using technology to allow farmers or allow the supply chain to go back to the way it was 50 years ago. Hmm. Um, that's the, the glass bottles, the reusable packaging, and the locals supplying locals. The, um, the other thing is the synthetic um, milks and so on is, you know, that synthetic dairy is quite exciting sort of technology. It's still going to be quite difficult for them to replicate a full milk but they can certainly do the um, the ingredients like certain proteins and things like that. Mm. Everything that I'm reading about uh, the potential for that is suggesting it's going to happen very quickly. Just as you see, the the meat alternative market now is exploding, and initially, you know, the the comparison has to be the same. It has to taste just like meat, but but quite quickly. Um, it's not about being the same. It's about actually being an alternative that has its own flavor profile, has its own cost profile, which is typically lower. Um, You know, I I would think you would be providing quite an important alternative to industrial-scale dairy, but also industrial-scale synthetics. Yeah, and this is where I go back to right at the start. I said the future for dairy is small-scale. And I think the dairy industry doesn't understand uh, the the threat that synthetics have to the ingredient business, and that's particularly the New Zealand dairy industry because mm. it's just an ingredients business. And you know, the technology is not actually that wacky or that weird. It's um, you know, vitamin C has been made exactly the same way. Insulin, again, and those are all you know had decades we made decades ago. And now when you look at the likes of um, AI and uh, AlphaFold, the, um, the technology that's enabling these food scientists to uh, figure out how to fold these proteins in a certain way, it's uh, absolutely going to happen, and it's going to happen really fast. So um, that doesn't actually solve the sustainability issue, though, because um, you know there is a, a feeling that crops are good for the environment, animals are bad, It's, you know, crops are actually very intensive forms of agriculture and everything about crops is not good. And it's, well, I say that everything about cropping is really when you want to be, when you you look at how you're going to protect the soil, uh, 
intensive cropping is almost the opposite of what you want to do to the soil. So I see that as good technology, but it's not going to simply solve the environmental uh, and it's certainly not going to be something we solve today in the next two minutes. Glenn, um, wh- how are you going in terms of sales? Is is this up and running? And can someone get a glass half full or a glass half empty of happy cow milk? Oh, well, we're waiting on our MPI approval. So we have our system sitting here. We're selling it to our friends and family. Um, but it's all very private at the moment. But um, as soon as we have our uh, approval, we will... Uh, we have a farmer in the North Island, so that will be our Waikato and Auckland supply, and then we've got a, a local Christchurch farmer as well. Um, and uh, we're crowdfunding again in uh, sort of late May, and, uh, and we'll use that money to uh, roll out across the country. Hmm, amazing. And so two years on, in fact, pretty much exactly two years on, uh, did you think at the time that you would be in this position? Uh, I kind of knew it was in the end. I, I didn't know what the plan was, but, uh, you know, it's, you know, I've been working on this since 2006. So, uh, you know, you always just got to keep going. <laughs> you, you either have a streak of belligerence, which must be annoying to live with, or you have incredibly supportive friends and family. Well, I just think that, when you have customer support like we do, it's just um, it's validation that you're working on something, and it's actually a really hard problem. Like I said, you know, it's it's not just a matter of finding someone who's going to put milk in a different container or finding another farmer. It's actually a really gnarly problem when you get into it. And mm. well, it's taken me ten years to get you here, but um, yeah, I think it's one of those things that when people actually see it working and they understand what I've been talking about all these times, uh, all this, all these years, I think. Um, It'll be obvious, but uh, yeah, it's been hard going. <laughs> well, you know, as they say, if you want a big breakthrough, find a big problem. Glenn, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Well done on your belligerence and keeping on going. It's uh, it's an amazing story to listen to, and uh, we wish you all the best. Where can people find you online? And if they wanted to sneak a little glass of sneaky uh, milk from you, where would they find you? Oh, well, uh, yeah, just go to happycowmilk.co.nz. I think Google Happy Cow, you'll find us somehow. The best way to st- is to sign up to our newsletter. We send that out every second week or so and with all our latest updates. And and absolutely come and have a coffee here at uh, Saltworks in Christchurch. And uh, we can, if you're ever down, we can uh, debate anything. Good stuff. Uh, I will quickly run out of knowledge, but, you know, I ask the questions. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Nice talking to you, Glenn. Thanks, Vincent. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. I hope you enjoyed the program. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer. That's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week, and no hurrah.